0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Lemon and welcome to Underreported, a podcast from Columbia Global Reports. Today we're welcoming Atusa Araxia Abrahamian to the studio. Atusa is the author of The Cosmopolites: The Coming of the Global Citizen, a book we published back in 2015. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The London Review of Books, The Guardian, and other publications. Atusa, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, uh, we have a lot to talk about because um, this was one of the first books we published at Columbia Global Reports. And um, things have changed since then. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, let's start with just – well, let's start with you. Um, so uh, of what country are you a citizen?
1: Great question. I'm a citizen of Canada, where I was born, uh-huh. of Switzerland, where I lived for 18 years, and of Iran, where my parents were born.
0: You didn't mention the United States.
1: I'm not a U.S. citizen. In fact, I'm in the middle of applying for a green card, which is an arduous process.
0: Oh, okay. Well, you know, I wish I were single and then we could get married and i would solve your problem. But <laughs> I have many offers, Nick. Yeah, it's, on, it's on you. Um, I want to start with uh, the 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 book, the story you tell in the book, and then we'll go to some of the broader issues, if that's okay. So um, how did you stumble onto this fascinating story or interlinked series of stories that you tell here?
1: So because I'm international myself, uh, I always had a strong interest in citizenship and immigration as a subject um, in the world and as a journalist covering them. I stumbled into the sale of citizenship, not because I was looking myself, although it did occur to me at various points. Um, I was working as a reporter at Reuters, and I began thinking about what I could do that wasn't just my beat. Um, and I, one day I received an email about the Global Citizenship and Residence Conference, And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That must be some kind of a UN thing. Uh, Must be, you know, crunchy humanitarian enterprise. But I clicked on it because I identify as a global citizen. And I was curious about what they really meant by global citizenship. And this led me to a website uh, of a company called Henley & Partners. And Henley & Partners was not using this platform to talk about all of the wonderful things that we can do for each other if we care about people on the other side of the world. They were selling passports. And there was, as it turned out, a large and healthy market for passports. This was in 2012. And I was lucky to fall upon this uh, at a time when it was growing quite dramatically.
0: And then, you know, in the book itself, you end up uh, focusing a lot on a couple of very memorable examples of the, the kind of bulk sale of citizenship. So if you could just walk us through those examples and tell us about them a little bit.
1: Sure. So in my mind, there are two threads that connect in the book. One is the sale of citizenship to wealthy people, the ultra high net worth individuals who buy another passport for convenience. It's kind of like an Amex card. It's a its a privilege. It's something you get to make your life easier if you don't have a good passport that lets you travel. That's one part. As yeah, you se-
0: were uh, saying when the book was coming out, I think... You can never be too rich, too thin, or have too many passports. Yeah,
1: that's the motto of this industry, catering to the wealthy. On the other side, there are millions of stateless people around the world. Uh, Ten million, I think, was the last count. Uh, One million of whom are the Rohingya, who've been in the headlines lately. But these stateless people uh, suffer from a lack of citizenship. They have no passport. They have no nationality. No country recognizes them as a subject or a citizen. And uh, through a a long and sordid tale that I get into in The Cosmopolites, some of these stateless people who live in the United Arab Emirates wound up having Comoro Island passports bought for them by the Emirati government. How this happened is, uh, I think, fascinating. It involves a Kuwaiti French businessman going to the Comoros, falling in love with the islands, and thinking about how he could, A, make a profit. And B help the Kuwaiti stateless people get a citizenship. As somebody who had acquired French citizenship later in life himself, and seen the advantages that being French gives him over being Syrian, where he was born, uh, he was naturally inclined to to you know try to extend this logic to the stateless.
0: So, for those of us who haven't taken geography in a while, uh, tell us where the Comoros Islands are, and and a little bit about them as a country.
1: The the Comoro Islands are an archipelago off the co- east coast of Africa. Uh, the closest country is, uh, it's kind of between, near Kenya, um, geographically. And uh, it's three islands. Uh, it's actually four islands, one of which voted to remain French uh, when the islands had an independence referendum. But the three remaining islands uh, are constitute an independent country. It's a very poor country, Their biggest export, I think, is uh, cloves and vanilla and some uh, essences that they use in very fancy perfumes. Um, Infrastructure is abysmal. Uh, There isn't a lot of aid to the country. And and it's just it's been kind of abandoned uh, by the French. I know a lot of Comorians feel like they've been abandoned. And so they have to resort to operating on the fringes of the global economy and providing something that other countries want that isn't just, you know, perfume. Uh, One of these things during the apartheid era was money laundering and banking um, for South Africans who were trying to get around sanctions. And now it's uh, providing passports for stateless people when repressive governments don't want to give them their own.
0: So why doesn't the UAE just make its stateless people citizens of the UAE? These are people you refer to in your book as Badoons, right?
1: Yeah, Badoon means without in Arabic and the reasons why the Emirates won't give them citizenship is it's ultimately political um, and tribal. Some of these people just didn't sign up in time when the Emirates were established as a as an independent country so they missed out and some of them are actually descendants of illegal immigrants so there's that reason not to give them citizenship um, not to get to inside baseball but there are Certain tribes and certain groups vote a certain way, and on the top level, there's an interest in keeping the status quo and not opening up the, the franchise to these people as well.
0: Right. So after they become citizens of Comoros, then what do they do? Do they ever go there, or do they just stay in the UAE?
1: I don't know if any formerly stateless Comorians from the UAE actually going to the Comoros, In fact, that was one of the conditions under which the Comoros granted them citizenship and issued them passports. They said, we don't actually want these people to come. An earlier version of the plan, um, as laid out by the, the French Syrian businessman I mentioned, Bashar Kiwan, was that he would actually build them condos and make kind of resorts for them in the Comoros, and they would go and settle That was not really what the government envisioned in the Comoro Islands. Um, They can barely provide for their own people. So forget about these droves of foreigners. Uh, Most of the people who received Comorian passports, I don't think even left the country. They were just documented. Uh, With the exception of one uh, human rights uh, advocate called uh, Ahmed Ahmed Abdul Khalik. He was not, he didn't leave by choice. He was deported. Uh, He previously couldn't. Be deported so easily because he didn't have papers to travel. But once he received his Comorian passport, the authorities thought, "Oh well, this is convenient. We can get rid of him." They sent him around the world, and now he lives in Canada, and he's doing quite well. But it was it was a, a rough a rough process for Ahmed.
0: Why um why was it worth it for the UAE to spend the money on this mass purchase of citizenship instead of just leaving the Bedouin stateless in the UAE and saying? we're not going to make you citizens, we're just going to kind of let you live the way you've always lived?
1: I'm really not sure. Um, This began before the economic crash, so they must have felt flush and uh, willing to take chances and to try out this little citizenship experiment. There was a lot of pressure from the UN and humanitarian organizations to document the stateless people, given the political constraints of that, this seemed like a good option, and I think that there were also people in the government who maybe had a stake in this. Uh, the person, the the businessman behind all of this, is very well connected in the in the Gulf states, and uh, I think there there were some favors that were that were
0: done. Okay, so now let's talk about the the part of the book that's set in the Caribbean, and just take us through in the same way the characters and the setting and so on.
1: Sure, so earlier on, I mentioned that company, Henley and Partners, that was putting on the citizenship selling junket, and uh, the man who the chairman of Henley and Partners is a swiss a native Swiss who now has many passports named Chris Kalin. Uh, Chris saw an opportunity in the sale of citizenship in the early two thousands. He saw the world changing. he saw visa restrictions going up, and he saw rich people chafing at the idea that they had to apply for visas like every other person. So Christian Kalin went to St. Kitts and Nevis in 2005-2006 and negotiated with the government to overhaul their part of their immigration law. Uh, St. Kitts, since it became independent in uh, the 80s, had a provision of their citizenship law that allowed for the sale of citizenship to wealthy foreigners. No strings attached. They didn't really make very good use of it. They didn't publicize it. Nobody knew about it. And at that point, the idea of buying and selling passports was Seen as pretty shady, Um, wasn't a good look. Kind of a James Bond thing. Chris Kalen went in there, and he's this very put together Swiss guy, very proper, and he designed a new program where wealthy people could buy condos and get a passport. They could make a donation and get a passport, and he kind of formalized this process. But I think the thing he added to the equation that was the most valuable was that he would then go around the world marketing it, and. Building awareness around the fact that you know if you're Russian or if you're Chinese and you get a Saint Kitts passport, your life's a lot easier. You can go to Canada without a visa. Uh, you can open bank accounts in certain places, and uh, the fact that this was taking place at a time when, broadly speaking, there was more there was more and more instability in the world. Um, between economic crashes and terrorist attacks, I think he really capitalized on this sense of fear and um, marketed passports as a plan B, almost in a survivalist way. It was very successful.
0: So let's go to um, some of the larger implications of this and and also to what's happened since the book was published. Um, you know, you talk about this a little bit in the book Um there's a famous old short story that some of us of a certain age were raised on called uh, Man Without a Country. And the idea was that uh, to be stateless was the worst thing that could happen to a person. It was it was a horrific fate because uh, national identity was supposed to be who you were, right? In addition to, uh, you know, your national identity gets you things like social security and and Medicare and things like that. So, um, do we still think that in the world um, is 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 uh, is citizenship is nationhood important in a globalized world?
1: I think that's been the debate of the past year or two. Even uh, if you ask somebody like Stephen Bannon, former White House advisor, he would say yes. Nas- uh, nationality and citizenship is the most important thing, and we need to restore it. Um, forget make America great again, make citizenship, make national identity great again. I think that these ethno-nationalist movements uh, are very invested in the idea of nationality and citizenship, um, perhaps not in a civic way, perhaps more in an ethnic way. Um, At the same time, we have what those people call the, the globalists, who maybe see beyond that and don't think that one should be bound by their their citizenship um in quite the same way as they used to, and that 's a real conflict
0: so there was a time when at least pundits uh, were really talking about globalization as the future of the world, meaning you know a sense of national belonging and identity and citizenship would just become decreasingly important to people around the world because you know, as the saying goes, the world is flat and people move around a lot, money and information move very freely. Um, Why isn't that happening? Or maybe it is happening.
1: It's happening and it's not happening. I think after the financial crisis, uh, there was a growing awareness that, quote unquote, globalization benefits the very wealthy much more than everybody else. And that the the positive aspects of globalization, this ability to travel the world, to live where you want, to taste different cultures, uh, the, the the benefits of this were not being distributed. I think that was due to economic pressures. I think it was also because people felt a lack of control. Um, they couldn't really control what was going on in their backyards because there was a Chinese company there all of a sudden. Of course, this has been happening for a long time, uh, but politics brought it to the fore, and and now we're having these debates all the time about is globalization good? Should we identify as citizens of more than one place? And what are our responsibilities to people on the other side of the world when there are people in our countries that aren't doing so well?
0: When people are, as is happening all over the world now, and very much in the United States but other places, uh, going nationalist, and and this is... uh, somewhat of a right-wing phenomenon, somewhat of a left-wing phenomenon. Um, I mean, this is a broad and therefore somewhat unfair question. What are they thinking? Uh, when somebody is politically behaving as a nationalist, uh, what does that person think they're for, and what does that person think they're against?
1: I think that nationalists, as as a broad group, uh, think they're for each other, um, within the country. Mm -hmm. Um, They are against others Mm -hmm. in the broadest of terms. Uh, And this can mean individual people or it can mean other countries. It could mean they want to redistribute wealth within the country in in a more equitable way and uh, prevent it from going offshore. Uh, It can also mean uh, banning certain types of foreigners or indeed all foreigners from coming in physically. So... There are some common points between right-wing nationalism and left-wing nationalism, and I think that on the economic front uh, there's a little more overlap. But we're seeing two types of nationalism emerge. We have more civic nationalism um, and ethnic nationalism. And ethnic nationalism is, is decidedly undemocratic, and it's it's definitely not in line with the way that a country like America conceives or conceived of itself in the past. Um, and that has less to do with citizenship and more to do with race and ethnicity.
0: Can you give a couple of examples of these two types of nationalism?
1: Uh, white nationalism is a term we hear thrown around a lot lately. Um, people like Richard Spencer, um, Breitbart News, the white nationalist media, um, seems to think that it would be uh, the, the U.S. would be a more coherent and peaceful and prosperous place if there wasn't so much mixing between the races. That That's a pretty obvious example. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these groups in Europe, you have these groups uh, all over the world, and a more civic kind of nationalism is something the, a candidate like Bernie Sanders ha- had at various points um, expressed that would involve not letting companies move their profits offshore. It would involve um, taxing the rich to help poorer people. And I guess the idea behind that is that you can't do it without having boundaries and borders. Um, you need somewhere within which to distribute wealth. And this unit happens to be the nation.
0: There's another uh, part of that, that I mean, you, you're sort of saying this already, which is um, in addition to everything else you've said, the nation state is really still the dominant, overwhelmingly dominant provider of welfare state benefits. Um, global organizations, NGOs, etc., cetera, don't do on the whole mass health care, mass pensions, mass education, things like that. So so there's a a reason to uh want to cling to nationhood because it, it gives you stuff that you need or that a lot of people need. Maybe the the ultra rich that you're talking about don't need these things, but most people do.
1: That's right, and I think that's what motivates uh, nationalism, economic nationalism from the left. If you want more people to be better off, you have to find a framework within which to make them better off, and uh, so far, attempts at doing this globally have have not even really gotten off the ground.
0: Well, you know, there's a whole argument that, that um, you know, we've got the famous disaffected white working class in the United States, and you know why shouldn't it be disaffected when its status relative to the rest of the country has fallen in the last generation pretty dramatically? Um, so often you'll hear globalists, if if it's fair to use that term, or if anybody uses it, you know, in a in a positive way, say uh, we have equalized incomes for unskilled workers between. You know, the developing world, the global south, and the United States and other developed countries. And, you know, how can you not do that? How can you justify having a world where the American worker is paid, you know, 10 times, 20 times what a Chinese worker, an Indian worker is paid? What do you think of that argument?
1: So, when you look at the data globally, um, globalization. And that, can, that means lots of different things, including um, freer trade, bigger movement of people, and technology technological advances. Um, globalization has actually improved the lives of a lot more people than it has um, made worse, uh, especially in Asia. The incomes of many, many people in China and India have gone up, uh, while the incomes of a very small group, mostly white men, have gone down or stagnated. Um, if you really are just looking at it in a utilitarian way, globalization has done more good in that respect than bad. The problem is that white working class men have a lot of political power uh, in the places that they live. So that's, I think, why we're hearing so much more about it. You're not really seeing the same kind of anti-globalization backlash uh, in, in Shenzhen, for example.
0: Right, but you're, you, you, I mean, conversely in Western Europe, the the policy web is much thicker, social policy web is much thicker than it is in the United States. So uh, you don't have this argument because unions are more powerful, et cetera. So, you know, the moral side of it is, you know, if you're going to say that about the United States, would you say, just depress you, it is morally indefensible what working class Swedes, Germans, and French people make because it's so above the world standard.
1: I think that instead of thinking about what happens when they make less, we should be aiming to make everybody else make more. And it's not that they make so much more that's indefensible. It's that other people make so much less.
0: So in other words, if you could build a global political economy that treated workers as well as... Workers are treated in northern and western Europe. That would be the best possible world.
1: I think so. And as as we know in the U.S., having gone through these endless healthcare debates, and debates again about it after healthcare is passed, uh, it's that it's much harder to take things away from people than to give it to them. And so it's very hard to say, okay, Swedish factory worker, you have to live with less now because he's used to that, and he, it. You start to think of it as as a right and uh, not not just a privilege. Um, whereas, if you tell someone else, "Hey, have have a couple more dollars," they're very happy about that. So it's all relative, and and it's it's hard to be a, a cold utilitarian when it comes to these things.
0: Let's talk a little bit about immigration and migration. Um, this, you know, really, your book. Um, touches on this, but it's become a much bigger issue in the two years since your book came out. Um, do you think it's plausible, or are we moving toward a world that would, would have truly open borders where these citizenship questions would kind of go away, uh, the, the, the old, maybe old EU model where you can create at least a zone and maybe the whole world where people can just move freely from country to country?
1: I think the prospect of these kinds of zones is much more um, likely than the whole world. I don't think we were ever on the road to a world with open borders. I think that was rhetoric and it was a myth. Um, bef- maybe the world had more open borders before we had border controls and passports in this whole system of security and uh, immigration enforcement, uh, but I don't think that there's never been a formalized open border policy for the entire world. Zones um I think will adapt however they, they see best. Um I think that in the in Africa there was talk of a of a pan African passport that would allow um citizens of all African countries to move freely. I don't know if that's going to be implemented anytime soon, but there was certainly talk of it. And you know, in the in the Caribbean, in um parts of Asia, you have uh, free trade agreements that also um, establish that people can move a little bit more freely.
0: Let me ask you about some of the uh, subnational separatist movements we're seeing now. Um, I'm thinking the top of mind examples as we're talking are Catalonia and Kurdistan. Um, is that what? What's that phenomenon? How should we think about it?
1: I think we should think about that also in terms of people feeling like they want more control of what's going on around them. Um, these are two very, very different examples. Uh, the Kurds are a pretty tight, coherent um, ethnic group uh, who have who uh, the and the group has has gone through a lot over the years. Um, they have uh, been organized. They have fought wars. They have established ways to share social services, and uh, yet they are not recognized as their own their own state. They've wanted statehood for a very long time, and uh, this is just those forces coming coming together again um, and trying they're trying to make another bid for it Catalonia is certainly an example of a group of people who have a regional identity uh, and the motivations in Catalonia at least to me seem maybe a little bit more selfish and uh, less noble than in Kurdistan because Catalonia is the part of Spain that's that's doing the best. And so you can think, national identity aside, you can think of it a little bit more in line with, say, Silicon Valley saying they want to succeed. Um, It's it's not to be crude, but it's a matter of not really wanting to share with with their fellow Spaniards because they see them as somehow other or less successful.
0: Do you see uh, the Trump phenomenon as... In part, at least, specifically a reaction to globalization and, and, you know, cosmopolites spreading through the world.
1: I think that's one of of many. I wouldn't discount pure racism and and disdain for other people and misconceptions about foreigners and brown people and black people. Um, There's also an economic component to that. Uh, But sure, you can think of that as uh, an aspect of globalization. Uh, If you have a more global place anywhere, if you have a more diverse place, you're going to have people that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, and maybe they don't act like you. And that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. It always has and uh, probably always will, as long as we're alive. And I think that the Trump phenomenon capitalized on that very successfully.
0: Can you tell us uh, something about what you've been working on, what you've been writing since this book came out?
1: So most recently, I published a story about a young man named Amos Yee. He is a Singaporean citizen, and back in Singapore, he was best known for some very provocative YouTube videos that he made about the Singaporean government. Um, He called their founder, who recently died, a dictator. Uh, He said some really offensive things about Christians and Muslims and and religion in general, uh, and I say offensive offensive to the Singaporean state because Singapore has some pretty strict laws about not offending other people's um, religions. That's one of the ways that Singapore says it keeps uh, a harmonious and multi-ethnic um, population. And to be fair, they're pretty successful at that. Singapore has low crime. People generally get along. It's It's not... The worst place in the world in terms of um ethnic conflicts though that they have their own and uh amos yee got into a lot of trouble for his videos because a he's a kid and uh, a kid talking uh a ch- um, he was he was sorry uh amos got into a lot of trouble uh, he was a minor uh, minors miners insulting older folks especially the leaders of countries uh, is frowned upon in in many countries including Singapore and uh, Singapore also has some pretty strict speech laws like the law that I mentioned where you're not allowed to offend other people's religions and so as a result of his YouTube videos he was he spent a fair amount of time in prison Uh, he was sent to a mental health facility basically the Singaporean state gave Amos Yi a really hard time and he didn't really do anything to to help himself either. He wouldn't stop, and he said that he was continuing to do this because it was his right to free speech. Um, Amos fell in with a group of internet atheists uh, who, depending on who you ask, uh, really don't like organized religion or use that as a pretext to insult Islam uh, because many of their criticisms tend to be focused on um, Muslims and their practices. Uh, Amos, he befriended a number of these people, most of them are in the U.S., and in their conversations online, they suggested that Amos come to the U.S. and apply for political asylum. He didn't love the idea at first. He's just a kid. He lives with his mom. Uh, But after his second time in prison and his second trial, he decided that he was sick of this in Singapore. He wanted to have a life. And so he actually got some money together, bought a plane ticket, and flew to Chicago, where he was supposed to meet a friend of a friend who would take him in for for a while. He kind of fumbled at the airport. He didn't really go through the asylum process the way he was supposed to, but he did declare ultimately that he was there to seek asylum. And he was detained. And over so he arrived here shortly after the election of Donald Trump. And between last November and... Last week, uh, Amos was in a detention center trying to obtain asylum. Uh, At first, about three months into his stay, he won. He got asylum. A judge in Chicago said he's a young dissident. He deserves asylum. um, He's being persecuted back home. But the Trump administration's lawyers actually appealed that, which doesn't happen super often. And they appealed it on very interesting grounds. They said his evidence isn't good, Uh, Singapore is a great country, they have a very fair judicial system, uh, everything you'd expect. But they also said, if we let this kid in, if we grant asylum to to an internet troll, then we have to let in all of the internet trolls. And it sets a really (laughs) bad precedent. Now, the irony of that is astounding, because who is the biggest internet troll in the world? I, w- I won't say it.
0: DJT. Those are his initials, right? <laughs>
1: That's right. Um, and so, but Amos, he and his team of lawyers kept fighting this, and they were able to convince um, the final court that Amos was, in fact, going to get into a lot of trouble if he went back home, that he had a legitimate claim. And uh, now he's a, a free 18 year old uh, wandering around the Chicago suburbs, I believe.
0: <laughs> That's great. We're we're running short on time now, so I think I better uh, wrap up. So, Atusa, I want to thank you so much for being here. And please uh let us know right now where to find you online. What's how do you, how do we get you on Twitter or anywhere else that you're uh, present online?
1: Well, there are lots and lots of Atusa Araxia Abrahamians out there. So, how many? you're going to have to <laughs> Really? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Atusa ATOSSA Roxia AR a-X-I-A and that's my first name and my second name um, and that's about it I, uh, I don't I don't have a blog or anything like that my website is the same as my Twitter handle
0: Okay, Thanks a lot and this book is The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. It's available now wherever you buy books I'm Nick Lemon and thanks for tuning in